This is episode number 33 with Nora Gedgudis. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools, and rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Nora is a board-certified nutritional consultant and a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist with over 20 years of clinical experience. A recognized authority on ketogenic and ancestral-based nutrition, she is a popular speaker and educator and the author of the best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, as well as Rethinking Fatigue and her newest book, Primal Fat Burner, is out right now. I first stumbled across Nora's work in 2010 when I rocked up to a holistic gym called Origin of Energy here in Sydney. And at that time, I was incredibly depressed and my health was at rock bottom. I had acne all over my face. I had eczema. I had lost my period. So I was a little bit of a mess. And Aaron, the owner of the gym, said, you need to read Primal Body, Primal Mind. And I did. And it was a massive light bulb wake up call for me. So I am very excited for you guys to hear from Nora today. She has been such a big inspiration for me. In today's episode, we chat about how she went from living with a family of wild wolves to where she is today. Yes, you heard me correctly. How she lost 25 pounds doing no exercise and eating more healthy fats than ever before who is Weston A. Price and how his work inspired Nora the two common things the most healthiest people in the world eat the best way to age gracefully and limit disease why eating too much protein is not good for you and makes you age the truth about depression and her 25-year struggle with depression herself and how you can support yourself if you are currently experiencing it. Why diet is the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to dealing with depression. The causes of depression. The top things you can do today for anxiety and depression. How she healed her 25 years of dark depression. The three powerful things you can do today for anxiety and depression. Why you need to cut out gluten right now. Why you need to listen to your food cravings. Plus, so much more. For everything that Nora and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 33. You can also leave any comments for Nora or I in the show notes there and we will get back to you as soon as we can. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode with the one and only Nora Gigudis. Nora 
Welcome, Nora. I am so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? A cup of tea with a little, you know, coconut cream mixture in it. And uh, actually, that's pretty much all I've had so far today. It's been <laughs> it's been a very, very busy day. There's a lot actually going on. So to give us a little backstory on how you got to where you are today, can you take us back to when you were living with a family of wild wolves I want to hear about what you've got going on as well now, all the exciting things. But before we get to that, can you take us back to when you were living with these wild wolves and how that led you to where you are today? You know, that was back in 1991. And at that time, you know, I was uh, doing some work in in wildlife research and as a, a dear friend and colleague who was a wolf biologist invited me to uh, spend an entire summer uh, less than 500 miles from the North Pole for the express purpose of basically doing behavioral research with this this family of wolves that he had managed to to find and establish a relationship with. And every summer he goes back and that particular, and he'd only found them a couple of years before I went up there with him. But uh, to my understanding, he continues to go back every single summer to watch how this particular pack uh, structure and family has evolved over that time and changed. Um, And at the time I was kind of bought into the idea of, um, of the whole low-fat paradigm of, you know, that that uh, the base of the food pyramid was all, you know, kind of grains and legumes and things, and I was trying to do that. I was eating some meat uh, at the time. I was doing a lot of juicing. I was, you know, probably eating a lot of fruit. I don't know. But uh, when I was planning to go up to the high Arctic with my companion, his name was uh, Dr. L. David Meech is the biologist's name, world's foremost scientific authority on the wolf. And I was quite concerned about what was going to happen to my, what I thought of as a very healthy diet at the time. And, you know, because there weren't, there wasn't going to be fresh produce up there. We weren't going to be able to go grocery shopping. So whatever provisions we were able to bring with us that were, you know, semi non-perishable and, 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 you know, we had the opportunity to hunt a little bit for what, what we ate, um, was going to be kind of it. And, uh, I found that when we made the first, well, actually the second stop, it takes, takes a few, uh, plane rides to get to where we went because there there are no commercial airlines going to this location. And there was a, an Inuit uh, village um, by the name of Resolute Bay on Cornwallis Island, which was south of the island, actually, that, that we wound up on for the summer. But it was a stopping point, a place for us to go and uh, kind of get some gear together. And, uh, and uh, we stayed with some people that Dave knew there for a day or two before we embarked uh, uh, to Ellesmere. But uh, Resolute Bay is, at the time, was a village of about 200 Inuit people. And it's not a particularly pretty place. These people were sort of forcibly located there by the Canadian government some time back. Um, 
but there was a very small building that was kind of their combination grocery store, post office, you know, whatever have you. And uh, they did sell some processed foods in there, and maybe once every week or two, a few limp vegetables would come in on a twin otter plane. But for the most part, the store-bought items were expensive. This was not a, you know, this was a community of people mostly uh, only able to live or mostly able to live a subsistence lifestyle. So it was about 80% subsistence uh, at the time. Uh, My understanding is now this has changed and many more of these people in these communities are consuming the foods of modern commerce, so to speak. And uh, many are uh, are falling, you know, prey now to diabetes and obesity and all the same things that we are, you know, down here in the in the in the Western world. But, um, but at any rate, uh, these people were basically eating, uh, you know, seal and walrus and whale blubber and um, you know, and going out and hunting muskox in here and there, and maybe the occasional caribou and you know whatever it is that they could could uh, subsist on probably some fish, whatever. And I didn't really see obesity there. And I, I wasn't seeing people that looked particularly unhealthy or unhappy. Um, I saw little kids out playing on their swing sets and things like that at three o'clock in the morning. It was 24 hour daylight. So, and they've got their teenage mutant ninja t- you know, turtle t-shirts on and you know, they're swinging on the monkey bars without any gloves on and it's close to freezing, but it's getting to be Arctic spring for them or summer. And so for them, it was balmy. And uh, the kids seemed well-adjusted and happy and um, curious and uh, just simply delightful. And clearly these people weren't eating vegetables. They weren't eating salads. They weren't juicing. They weren't doing all the things that I thought would be healthy. And they definitely were not eating a low-fat diet. And yet nobody was fat. And it niggled at me a little bit. And I didn't really know where to put that. So I just squirreled it away in the back of my mind. And then when I went, uh, finally made it to Ellesmere, which is a considerably more beautiful place, breathtakingly beautiful, really. Um, I was looking out over a landscape that was probably not too different looking from what Northern Europe looked like 40,000 years ago and Cro-Magnon humans marched across it. You know, there was a lot of permafrost and um, and uh, not a lot else. And um, But still, just really pristine and beautiful. And I thought, you know, what did, what did humans ever do during the last ice age, you know, when they were surrounded by snow and ice and in North America had, you know, 2000 foot, you know, um, glaciers, you know, pushing across it in places and things probably weren't growing very well. And again, I didn't know where to put that, but it, it was something that lived in the back of my mind. And one of the things that I also found when I was there that um, I began developing cravings for fat, that that was the thing that I really most wanted. And I had never craved fat before. The really interesting thing was, is that, well, there were a lot of interesting things about that trip, but uh, that I got almost no physical exercise that summer. We pretty much sat near the den uh, watch the wolves do what they did. If we wanted to follow the wolves on their hunts or whatever, we used four wheelers to uh, to take us because the ground is very hummocky, very uneven, very difficult to to walk on that. And um, in any in any case, 
there wasn't a lot of exercise to be had. On occasion, uh, after hours, um, I would take maybe a little stroll across the tundra, but again, it wasn't much for exercise. So I wasn't working out, and I was actually very well bundled against the cold. I never felt cold, um, I, and uh, but I was constantly wanting to, you know, snack on things like 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 nuts and nut butters and and salami and cheese and things that I just really wasn't wasn't eating back at home. And at the end of the summer, I ended up losing close to twenty five pounds. Um, and I was, you know, extremely lean and, um, and hadn't worked at that at all. And clearly there was something happening with respect to the thermogenic effect that my body in part, you know, was using, uh, because what we use in order to keep ourselves warm is, uh, our body burns fat to do that. And so, uh, even though I was well bundled against the cold, I'm sure my, my furnace had to work a little harder to keep me warm. But at the very least, it was curious that sitting around on my bum, um, <laughs> as you guys might say, all summer long, not moving very much and just eating fat-rich food, uh, you know, to lose a lot of weight on that was not what should have happened relative to what I had been taught. And uh, when I got back to the States, uh I ended up stumbling across the work of Weston A. Price, and I don't know whether your listeners know who that is or not, if you need a quick explanation of who he was. Yeah, go for it. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with his work, but for those that aren't familiar with Weston A. Price, yeah, give us a little rundown. Sure. Well, he was, at the time, you know, in the late 1920s, he was president of what used to be called the National Dental Association. This was long before the American Dental Association came online. And um, and he had spent, uh, you know, years working on, you know, as a dentist working with patients. And he started to notice that the children of many of his longstanding patients were showing up with with dental problems he had never seen before, you know, severe malocclusion, you know, dental crowding, um, many more cavities and and other forms of dental diseases. And they seemed to be, you know, um, they seemed to have different kind of skeletal kind of structure. There is their heads looked narrower and whatever than 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 people's typically did and all these other things. And he wondered whether, because he had uh, was also a bit of an anthropologist, he had a long-standing passion and interest in primitive cultures, and and he had lear- long heard the rumors of the extreme robust health and the healthy teeth and and um, of of people living in primitive cultures around the world. And he wondered whether the modernization of the food supply at the time and the industrialization of the food supply at the time had maybe something to do with that. And so to answer his question, he decided to embark on a journey um, of over 100,000 miles over a period of about 10 years. And at the time, it was a very interesting time period in our history because we had just developed air travel, and yet there were still primitive and traditional cultures and societies that were thriving all over the planet in ways that he could go and study um, most of those cultures are gone now, uh, at least their traditional way of life. So he really, really caught 
a really important and wonderful snapshot of what was actually happening. And what he found was that everywhere he went where people groups were consuming the diet of their ancestors, right, living in the either the primitive or, or a, tr- a highly traditional fashion, they enjoyed fairly robust health, that w- freedom from disease, freedom from dental problems. They had healthy, robust skeletal structure um, and were also just seemed, you know, uh, very happy and well-adjusted. And where some of these people had been starting to enculturate into the modern, into more modern society and were moving into cities and adopting the dietary patterns of those in, in the in emerging Western world, um, he saw a, a very marked and unmistakable decline in health. But where what was really striking was in was in their children. Um, he would see many more. Um, in health problems and and abnormalities in in the children of people who had attempted to enculturate into you know more Western industrialized life, and so what he did was he exhaustively chronicled everything he did. He took a massive number of photographs. He had the diets of every people group that he studied analyzed. And, you know, he was there in Australia among the Aborigine, uh, Aboriginal populations in the remote outback. He was in Northern Alaska among, you know, uh, among the Inuit and other native North American tribes. He went to South America uh, to the native uh, cultures there. He went to Africa. Um, he also went to places like the remote Lochental Valley in Switzerland, where a people group, kind of a pastoral people group, was living a very traditional lifestyle uh, that had been kind of locked away from the rest of society for a couple thousand years. Um separated by mountain ranges. Uh, There were some people groups leading a reasonably traditional lifestyle in the Outer Hebrides Islands, you know, um, and that sort of a thing. And at at any rate, he chronicled a lot. And in the end, what came out of it was a textbook called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And this was actually considered required reading in Harvard anthropology classes for, uh, for many years. Uh, it's not a light read. <laughs> it was not meant to be kind of a popular New York Times bestseller. It was an, it was designed to be a textbook, so it's a bit of a heavy, involved read. But if all you ever did was look at the pictures, it tells almost the entire story. Um, the faces and the the physical uh, structure and the dentition of primitive cultures versus modernized peoples were just, the contrast was unmistakable. Now, there were two things that he discovered in in throughout this whole thing, because as you can imagine, he was traveling the world, going from the tropics to the desert regions, you know, extremely arid places like the outback to to the uh, Arctic and, and everywhere in between in search of what these people were eating and how it impacted their health. And there were two consistent factors in every single culture where people seemed optimally healthy. Number one, they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. And in fact, he searched the world to try to find a vegetarian or vegan culture, you know, um, and he and he, re- he simply couldn't find one. It, it really very much disappointed him. He wanted to find, you know, a primitive society that subsisted on nothing but plants. They just weren't out there. Um, 
So they all consumed, and actually, the, you know, the more animal source foods a, a culture had access to and the greater variety, you know, the better off, you know, um, uh, you know they, they seem to do great. The other side of this was that in every single culture and society where people seemed optimally healthy, the single most important and sacred food, the one which was the most cherished and valued, what were in every single case, the foods that were highest in fat and fat-soluble nutrients. And we're talking about animal source foods here. So, um, you know, a major contrast to what we're told is supposed to be a healthy, optimal human diet. But it's in alignment now with everything that I've kind of discovered throughout my research. You know, the Weston Price thing... I think the, a message that a lot of people took away from his work, because he had he had observed such a diversity of cultures, that the message that a lot of people got out of that was, well, all you got to do is just just eat real food, right? Just stick to whatever seems the most natural, and um, and all of that, and 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 you know you're you're going to do just fine. But one of the things that really stands out to me is is that he was so smart to ask that question of what did they all have in common and in answering that question and in and in revealing those two answers what we have there is the foundational basis for what is optimal in every human diet across the board and then the rest of it all these other uh, you know, things that people ate, the various weird plant foods and the fruits and the, you know, and even the vegetables and whatever else, these were nuances. These were, you know, in addition to, or possibly, um, you know, some of these things might have been actually less optimal for their health, but as long as they had those foundations intact, they were able to compensate for things that may have been less optimal for them. So, you know, the maybe starchier foods or sugarier foods, you know, honey or whatever it was that some of these other cultures may have had access to. The bottom line is what is foundational. And then from there, the rest is nuance. And we add the nuances in relative to what is likeliest to support our best health and is least likely to compromise it. And so a lot of people see me as being a part of this whole paleo genre. And that's sort of the niche that uh, I sort of got it plopped into, I guess. But I don't actually consider myself pure paleo in terms of my, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how I approach this. Um, I, I definitely think that whatever the foods would have been that we as an emerging species would have had the most access to, right? Whether we would have consumed the most consistently throughout our evolutionary history would have absolutely um, helped to shape our physiological makeup and would certainly have established our fundamental nutritional requirements. And to me, that is the only rational starting place. It is an essential starting place, but it's only a starting place. Because just because our ancestors put something in their mouths, chewed it up and swallowed it and didn't drop dead, does that mean 
that that it's optimal for us or that it was even optimal for them and how would we know so where i have gone with that with that foundational starting place is i've looked very closely at what's going on in longevity research because longevity research isn't just looking at what helps you live a long time if something's helping you live a long time it's doing so because it's helping to protect you from disease right and so anything that we can do to maximize our longevity is essentially you know through through some of these uh kind of sort of cross-pollinating some of these principles is is going to minimize our risk of of disease and is also going to maximize healthy aging, right? And to me, that seemed like the perfect marriage to combine those two things. And it turns out they combine very, very well. But the other, one of the common perceptions is that uh, an ancestral diet means that you're eating a lot of meat, and I do eat meat, and I actually do think we all should be consuming some meat. But it turns out that we don't need to eat a lot of it. And in fact, the dietary approach I advocate for uh, strictly calls for moderating protein intake. In other words, meeting our basic protein requirements, but not exceeding them. And we know through longevity principles that that this actually has the effect of 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 holding off unnecessary cellular proliferation when we meet those those dietary well so okay so if we exceed those dietary requirements and we eat just like a a great big steak for every meal or some or something like that when we consume protein in excess of what we need part of that anywhere from 36 to 58% depending on who you get the information from of that protein has the potential to be converted to sugar and used the same way but also it triggers a metabolic pathway that researchers call mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. I talk about this in both of my books, um, and you can find out more about it there. But basically, this is a reproductive pathway. It's, it's, a, it's a protein sensor looking for whether there is excess protein in the diet or not. And if there is, it sees that as a really good opportunity to either reproduce, um, you know, in terms of having children or also making, making new cells. And we start to make lots of new cells, which is very expensive energetically. And it's kind of an out with the old and in with the new kind of a thing. But if you restrict your protein intake to just what you need and not exceed that, um, well, I like to put it in modern day economic terms because people can sometimes relate to that nowadays that it's like sending the message to your body that, you know what, it's too expensive to build a new house right now, so let's just fix up the one we've got. And what gets fixed up is you. Your body goes into repair and regeneration mode, and it's a loophole in Mother Nature's design that allows us to um, stay healthy enough and robust enough long enough to maybe possibly reproduce another day. And if we moderate the protein intake that way, um, that, that's extremely helpful. We don't want to overconsume protein, but we are still designed to get our protein from complete, in other words, animal source foods. We're extraordinarily well designed to get our protein that way. The other thing that longevity research tells us is that the less insulin we require in the course of our lives, the longer we're likely to live and the healthier we are going to be by far. 
that um, that it, it is a process of of um, gradual, um, basically glycation, a process of so glycation is a process by which sugars in your bloodstream will combine with you know with fats and proteins and you know your tissues basically and cause them to become sticky and misshapen and start to malfunction. It is how we age over time. It is why um, you know our skin starts to kind of sag and get wrinkled. While why you know our organs kind of start to fail. While why our brains maybe not aren't working so well past a certain point. That's not an essential part of the aging process. And the um, um, the same thing that causes rapid degeneration of our tissues and our brain and our and our nervous system and our immune system and everything else over the process of developing diabetes occurs pretty much in everybody just at varying rates depending on just how much you want to push that um, dietary carbohydrate intake because it is the the intake of sugars and starches that actually create metabolic disorder and insulin resistance and it's not the intake of dietary fat in and of itself but i will say that the combination of fat and sugar is not good so it's not that more that everybody should be eating more fat um dietary fat is something if it's coming from healthy natural sources high quality natural sources from in other words from animals that have that have lived a reasonably natural life themselves and have been allowed to eat what's natural for them which is green forage green grass um that we have nothing literally nothing to fear from that type of fat um but we don't want to be combining that with a high carbohydrate intake, our ancestors never did that um, in any significant way, and this is a very modern day phenomenon. Um, Ten thousand years ago, we began to adopt uh, agriculture, and for, uh, between ten thousand years ago and now, we've lost just over ten percent of our brain volume. We've developed uh, for the first time ever what we now call the diseases of Western civilization that have that have gradually increased over that time. Our genome has been compromised and, and becomes increasingly compromised. And of course, a couple hundred years ago, when we started industrializing the food supply, then we really hit a slippery slope. Um, and so, I guess in slightly more than a nutshell, um, that's kind of what led me. Uh, to the basic, you know, view of of diet and health that I've arrived at, and of course I've got a twenty year background in you know clinical background in working with uh, people's brains, and in also doing uh, nutritional consultation, and I've been a witness to just about every kind of health related suffering that there is, and. Um, I also base a lot of what I recommend on what I saw work best for the populations that I worked with over the years. So that's kind of the perspective that I come from. Wow. Everything that you're saying just resonates so truly with me. We've had Dr. Joseph McCullough on the show and he talked about eating too much protein and activating the mTOR pathway because there's been in my life where I have definitely 
eat in way too much protein. Oh, it's so easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> and we're conditioned to do it. We're conditioned to feel as though we haven't been fed unless there is a mountain of food on our plate, right? Absolutely. And when I was listening to you as well, I was also thinking, you know, I definitely got caught in that low fat phenomenon, you know, many years ago, I completely starved my body and my whole reproductive system shut down. I lost my period. It took me about a year and a half just to get my hormones back online. So everything that you're saying just resonates so deeply, which is, you know, why I love you and your work. In 2010 was when I stumbled across your book. I was actually training at a gym here in Sydney called Origin of Energy. It's very... Mm-hmm. Do you know it? Yes, I do know them. Yes. Yeah. So, Aaron was is one of yes. my, my great friends and I kind of walked into... Please say hi to him for me. I, I will. I will. <laughs> I walked into his studio with pimples all over my face, black black circles under my eyes, eczema all over my body, no period. And at the time I was eating pretty much zero animal products. And he was like, right, read this book. And he gave me your book. (laughs) (laughs) He said, read this and, and then we'll talk. And he really did open my eyes to a lot of the information that we have just spoken about. So, I'm very, very grateful. Um, And apart from the work with the Wolves and Western A. Price, your interest in nutrition was sparked through a lifelong struggle with depression yourself, which then led you to become the full-time and passionate practitioner of neurofeedback. Now, before we go into the gut and the brain stuff, which I do want to definitely talk about with you. Can you tell us about your struggle with depression? Because I feel like, I don't know if this is the same for you, but almost every second person I speak with has either been prescribed medication for anxiety or depression. I actually think it's 40% of Americans are on antidepressants. So, what the heck is going on? Right. So, yeah, and according to the World Health Organization, major depression on its own is expected to be the second leading cause of disability in the world by by 2020, in a second only to ischemic heart disease. And, you know, the National Institute of Health also project that in less than 20 years, depression will be the biggest health burden in the world. And And, you know, it's all too frequently treated as being a disease, um unto itself, um, and it's sort of seen as being, well, there, there are a couple of different myths, basically, associated with, you know, uh, with depression. You know, one, um, that, it's a, that it's a neurotransmitter deficiency. Now, even as the modern-day medications uh, used to treat it are all focused on that paradigm, that's not where the research is going. And so, Clinical depression is something that is, rather than being a disease and and being seen in that light, it's something that needs to be viewed as being secondary to other things. One of the things that that you might notice is that depression is inherent in is it's 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 a common thread and early sign and symptom of virtually every single neurodegenerative disease and process that we know of 
Um, we see, you know, depression where there is Alzheimer's disease, where there is Parkinson's, you know, where there is, you know, Lewy body disease, where there are other forms of dementias, um, and, um, you know, ALS and, you know, whatever, anything that involves a degenerative neurological process, depression is going to be a characteristic of that. And so we need to take depression very seriously but it's something that isn't necessarily a disease in and of itself that we all uh, need to be taking, you know, some kind of magic pill for, right? Um, now, you know, here in the United States, it affects basically a fourth of the population, you know? And, you know, the fact is, is that you're just as dead from suicide as you are from cancer, so it it is a potentially deadly condition, but um, you know when when I when I look back at pictures of myself when I was a little kid, you know, um, they all betray some look of sadness about them, and you know, literally from the earliest memories that I have, you know, all the way into my mid thirties, I barely remember a time when I wasn't depressed, actually, to one degree or another. And that's really what sparked my passion for nutrition early on and for finding answers to questions about health that weren't apparent, you know, from any of, you know, uh, from anything else that I could find. I did discover that I could somehow change the way I felt by taking certain supplements and things like that. But, you know, when I was younger, even though I had a tremendous passion for nutrition, I didn't have this underlying kind of cohesive framework that I do now that, that provides me with a solid foundation on which to build, um, you know, to, to build the, uh, you know, a clear path to health. So, uh, but depression was something that literally drove me uh, to find answers. And it was a very fortunate thing about me was that I knew that there had to be an answer to the way I felt and I felt extremely driven. And, um, you know, I, in fact, I owe a lot actually to the experience of depression in, in many respects for that very uh, reason. It's what prompted me ultimately to, um, to become an extremely successful clinical practitioner and also to be able to, you know, write the books I've been able to write, you know, it's pretty much led me to talking to you here right now. So there are a number of different issues that, that have to be considered when you're looking at the sources of depression. And there are a lot of things that can factor into it. It's not a simple answer of, well, it's just this one thing. You just need to eat fewer carbs and that'll be it, right? That's not it. Um, there is there is a dietary component. There's unquestioningly a dietary component. Surely that's the lowest hanging fruit. Right, exactly. And that's what we need to take control of is the lowest hanging fruit. We start with that. And things like blood sugar, right? Um, if your blood sugar is messed up and it's constantly roller coastering all over the place, you're not going to have stable mood. You're not going to have a positive outlook in life. And you're going to be constantly attributing that to everything and everyone else around you, not understanding that, you know, emotions are just simply biochemical storms in your body and brain. So, you know, the healthier your biochemical makeup, you know, at base, certainly the healthier your emotional forecast is going to be. And one of the things that I am constantly um, talking about is 
the idea that we all have this lens through which we see the world. We all see the world through this lens, you know, that, that is our biochemistry, our hormones, our neurotransmitters, and, you know, the degree to which we choose to be dependent on it, our blood sugar. And all of that um, sort of colors our perceptions and our interpretation of the world around us. And the, the, you know, the implications of this are absolutely huge when it comes to, you know, how our subconscious mind is going to work, uh, how it is that we're going to kind of manage our quality of life, and, uh, and, and what that default kind of, um, kind of emotional basis is going to be for us. And uh, we shouldn't having, be having to constantly struggle with positive thinking and, you know, and, and, uh, and that kind of a thing all the time. It should really be a natural outgrowth of a healthy underlying biochemistry. You know, to some degree, and, and it's worth pointing this out because depression isn't always pathological. I mean, it's certainly entirely human to experience depression here and there along the way. It's perfectly normal. It's an adaptive response to certain stressors and events in our lives over which maybe we ostensibly have no control. I mean, if, if somebody close to you dies, um, then it's you know more normal than not to feel a little depressed about it. In fact, I'd worry about you if you did, didn't, you know. So it's a normal, natural emotion. And it tends to come with with perfectly natural but temporary feelings of loss and grief and helplessness and hopelessness and all of that surrounding traumatic events. But the issue is when we get stuck there, right, past a certain point, that we have to start viewing it as something more problematic, more maybe pathological. But for years and, in, in, you know, for decades, you know, in psychiatry and psychology and whatever, if you were depressed, it was basically viewed as a psychological disorder. And this is what I first faced when I began seeking help for what was just an intractable state of depression for me when I was about 13 years old. And again, back in those days, if you're depressed, you go talk to someone about your problems, you know, and they, they help you sort it through. And then hopefully you feel better about things and, and have whatever resources to, to go in and, and see your life in a, in a better light. Now I'd never disparage that kind of work. I would, you know, I, some of the most valuable, I'd even call it spiritual work I've ever done in my life has been, you know, working with an objective, really, um, really good psychotherapist. But, but that exercise was not able to touch what for me was a physiological underpinning of depression, right? And that's, you know, that's the kind of the rub is that, that I, I kept hitting this wall, where I, I made all of these strides in my personal life, in my relationship to myself, in my relationship to other people in my life. I wasn't operating from the state of angst and drama all the time and all of that. And so many things kind of stabilized for me, but there was still, at the time, what I wasn't able to identify as this physiological component that was depression, that just sort of, that loomed over me like a dark cloud. And I, I was as baffled as, as my psychologist, you know, uh, or my therapist was. And so, you know, and then with the advent of, of, you know, Prozac, of course, comes this whole other paradigm. And it's like, well, no, if you're depressed, it doesn't have to do with having a traumatic childhood or bad toilet training. No, no, no. It's, you know, it's a biochemical imbalance. And all you have to do is take this magic pill and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Well, we know now, and certainly in states here from the Freedom of Information Act, that the studies that were used to establish um, 
selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right, the SSRI drugs, as the gold standard in treating depression, actually showed them to be in clinical studies uh, slightly, only slightly more effective than placebo, only about 13% effective. And about 40% of the time of, uh, of that 13%, you know, you had... Um, you had basically the effectiveness falling off with time or leveling off in a way that you know where additional gains couldn't be gotten or where whatever gains were there were lost you know the bottom line was was that these certainly these medications weren't curing anything and in fact they come with a lot of worrisome side effects and potentially even lethal side effects they can even stimulate suicidality in some people um uh, in addition to causing a whole lot of other problems, and and uh, you you tend to lose a lot of um, vitamin B six, so you can actually increase your need for vitamin B six being on SSRIs, uh, which is ironic because that's what you need in order to combine with tryptophan to produce serotonin in the first place. But at any rate, it's not just a neurotransmitter deficiency, and um. So where the research in this arena is actually, and well, so I, let me, I can run through uh, just a quick laundry list of some different things that can contribute to feelings of depression in people, but it turns out that there is actually a common underpinning in virtually all of them. So, you know, we talked about diet in general, right? Eating junk food and lots of additives or veganism and, you know, that sort of a thing, excessive, you know, alcohol or whatever. Uh, and then blood sugar issues. Blood sugar issues, um, if you have them, you are not going to manage well. Um, and uh, if you're constantly having blood sugar surges, that's going to stimulate an inflammatory response. It's going to stimulate sympathetic overdrive. And I actually see depression and anxiety as being two sides of a very similar, if not the same coin. Very frequently, I see depression as, as a case of anxiety to exhaustion, you know. Um, chronic dehydration, also uh, potentially problematic when it comes to mood, uh, adrenal health, you know, having problems, um, uh, you know, with, with your adrenal health can certainly lead to depressive symptoms. Having depressed thyroid function can also lead to depress uh, depressive uh, emotional states. Having anemia. You know, uh, of any kind, even if it's only functional anemia, it doesn't even have to be clinical anemia. Even a slight anemia is going to make it very, very hard for you to feel well and function in your life. Having certain deficiencies of, of, of nutrients, um, food sensitivities, uh, and, uh, you know, things like gluten immune reactivity, immune reactivity to dairy products, immune reactivity to other foods. Most commonly, uh, these are the foods that uh, of post-agricultural origin, the ones to which were the least well-adapted immunologically, that people developed immune reactivity to. And these can lead to autoimmune conditions, which are also highly correlated with depressive symptoms in many people. Free radical processes like cancer. Yes, it's a bummer to have cancer, but people are likely to experience depression even before they get the cancer diagnosis. Uh, which isn't helpful because depression also seems to be immunosuppressive. So, um, and chronic infections uh, also tend to come with depressive symptoms oftentimes. Um, 
Now, you know, here in the Northern Hemisphere, we have issues with things like seasonal affective disorder that has actually a lot to do with exposure to light. We think also possibly vitamin D and that results in chronic low serotonin levels during the day when melatonin doesn't reconvert back into serotonin because there's not enough light for that. Um, also having digestion issues uh, or, or you know, inflammatory gut problems and things like that, dysbiosis, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, parasites, all these kinds of things, having hydrochloric acid insufficiency, having biliary problems or pancreatic insufficiency, all these things, are, you're not going to feel great if you have those things. Your mood is not going to be fabulous. Sleep disorders also potentially very strongly related to depressive symptoms. Um, and a bit of a chicken and egg thing too. There are certain genetic polymorphisms like having MTHFR genetic defects or pyroluria, which is a, you know a, um, basically a, a genetic uh, disorder um, that that makes both zinc and vitamin B6 largely unavailable to you. So you have to supplement with a lot of them in order to feel better. I write about these things in my book. Um, so. One of the things that virtually all of these different things I just listed have in common and where the entire realm of research now into depression is actually going uh, among the researchers that are really trying to get to the bottom of things is to what is called now the cytokine model of depression. And what that means, in effect, is that depression is fundamentally uh, more often than not, uh, an inflammatory condition. You know, it's being redefined within that context of this cytokine or immune cytokine model of depression. So in other words, it's not really a disease per se, but instead it's this multifaceted sign of chronic immune system activation, chronic glial cell activation. Um, you know, glial cells are basically your brain's version of its, its own immune system. And when these things become activated through an inflammatory response, whatever's causing that inflammatory response, they don't wind back down very easily. And that inflammatory response tends to cause a lot of damage. So, you know, you can be doing, you can be going to the best psychotherapist in the world or the best acupuncturist in the world or even the best neurofeedback practitioner in the world. And, um, but if you're not addressing the underlying source of what is actually creating the depressive symptom in the first place, you know, I, I see it a little bit like handing somebody who's in a sinking boat a teacup you know, to bail the boat out instead of helping them really find where the leak is and then put a stop to that leak, right? The teacup isn't likely to do the most good until the leak or leaks in the boat have stopped. And, and, and it's not necessarily all just one thing there, you know, there could be multiple things going on. So, you know, the, the researchers have found that depressed individuals do in fact tend to have more inflammation. They do tend to secrete more cytokines, which are inflammatory compounds. And uh, anything that you do to add to that inflammatory process is going to further drive depressive symptoms. Now, most of your listeners are probably savvy enough to know that what lies at the root of most disease processes are out there is inflammation. You know, our immune systems have, you know, and the inflammatory response is certainly part of our immune response. Our immune systems have 
never been under more um uh more attack but from more sides than at this particular time in our evolutionary history. I actually think we're living in a more hostile world today than anything our prehistoric ancestors ever had to put up with. And um and so in a, in the face of so much that is seemingly so overwhelming, and when you think of all the things that we're being exposed to day to day that could create an inflammatory response, it's really incumbent upon us individually to, to take control of what we can and to kind of go through the whole checklist, if you will, of potential causative factors and figure out what what seems to resonate based on your sim- your other symptoms because nobody ever has just one symptom you have somebody that's depressed i promise you that's not the only thing that they're going to complain about there're going to be other things going on with them now they may also suffer digestive issues right um maybe they have irritable bowel syndrome or something like that so looking at you know getting a complete gi profile done looking at whether you have dysbiosis and what the nature of that dysbiosis is and addressing that could be one very important part of addressing depression for you um or um you know if you're if a blood chemistry comes back and it looks as though you've got some sort of chronic infection going on lots of people walk around with chronic viral infections, cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr or, you know, hep C or, you know, whatever. There's so many different kinds of viral infections that, that people will sometimes carry around for weeks, months, years, even decades and not know. And this is a really interesting thing that um, when we have a, like a flu bug or something like that, just, you know, think for for one minute, just how you feel when you're, when you have the flu, right? You're not in a cheery mood. Um, you know, you're down in the dumps and you're not wanting to move very much. Um, and you're just not in a particularly positive or productive mental, mental state. And, um, what happens when you have an infection, for instance, something like a viral infection, your body starts to produce a lot of interferon as a way of increasing the activity of natural killer cells. Those natural killer cells then are designed to go out and combat the infection. And everything's supposed to be, you know, fine and good, except if these things become chronic, it's problematic because interferon is an inflammatory cytokine. And that, inflammatory, that particular type of inflammatory cytokine can have a profoundly dampening effect on an area of your brain known as the hypothalamus. And uh, in fact, there's a, there's a, there's a sub-portion of your hypothalamus called the paraventricular nucleus. And, and it's the central integrative state of that part of your brain that determines whether you're going to be able to produce enough um, cortisol in order to feel energized to go out and do things or deal with stress. And whether or not you are going to uh, secrete neurotransmitters and how much. And so it turns out that interferon has a profoundly dampening effect on those paraventricular nuclear cells of your hypothalamus. And so you're naturally going to feel more depressed when you have uh, a chronic infection of some kind. Um, but, you know, it... it can be other things too. If you're doing a lot, if you're eating a, lot, a high carbohydrate diet, you're creating a tremendous amount of inflammation in your body all the time. And inflammation uh, in your body is, uh, for one thing, it tends to, to trigger sympathetic overarousal. Um, and it's sort of funny because I mentioned the anxiety to exhaustion thing. 
people think of depression all too often. That's another major myth associated with depression is almost like like a lazy person's disorder, right? They're depressed because they're just not grabbing their, picking themselves up by their own bootstraps and, you know, hey, you got to turn that frown upside down and get out there and exercise and think positively and, you know, you just want to rip their eyeballs out of their head, you know, if you're feeling this way because, you know, when I think of the amount of energy it took me to get through a single day in the years where I experienced depression, um, it's astonishing to me I was ever able to accomplish anything in my life at all. That it is a state of chronic efforting. You are struggling. You are spinning your wheels on a snowy road, which maybe Aussies can't, you know, relate to very well. But, you know, I'm from Minnesota, so the snow analogies work well for me. Um, when there's, you know, kind of an icy road, you're stuck in a ditch, maybe mud. Maybe you guys may get mud once in a while. Um, you know, and the tires are just sort of spinning. Um you know, you're expending a lot of energy and getting nowhere. And um, I think that that is, is maybe the most useful characterization of what depression really feels like to people that have it. Um, now, for me, the remedy involved uh, two things that happened almost simultaneously. Uh, at the time uh, I emerged from depression... Uh, it was through the process of neurofeedback. And it was literally after my second neurofeedback session, my what had been a lifetime of helplessness and hopelessness just kind of flew out the window and then, you know, really never came back. Um, it's been t- more than 20 years now. And depression is a non-issue in my life in any meaningful way. It's not like I never have a bad day anymore, or, you know, or a bad week or something like that. But it's, it's you know, it's just a day or it's just a few days. Or it's just, you know, and tomorrow's another day. I'm not stuck there anymore, right? Um, but the other thing that was happening at, at about the same time I started to undergo neurofeedback um, and mind you, I had tried everything up to that. I mean, many years of high quality psychotherapy and all kinds of deep inner spiritual work sitting at mountaintops and going and reading every self-help book that there was. And I spent a week working with Tony Robbins and I did all this other stuff, you know, and uh, learned a little bit of something or other from all of those experiences. Uh, and they certainly helped dimensionalize who I am. But n- those, none of those things were able to fully deal with what had been the physiological component of depression until I addressed things from a foundational standpoint. And I stumbled across this, um, this sort of ancestral model of health and diet and began to adopt that um, as something that's just seemed entirely rational to me. And I began to eliminate carbohydrates from my diet in a sugar and starch-based carbohydrates, still eating fibers, vegetables, and greens, which I do to this day, but just getting rid of the sugar and starch. And then I began moderating my protein intake, and I became unafraid of very high-quality, healthy animal fats. And all of this basically, so the neurofeedback flipped the switch um, that, that really kind of cleaned my windshield, if you will. And uh, helped me emerge from those chronic feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. What helped me maintain that for the last 20 years were these dietary changes that I made. Because again, unless you are addressing things from the bedrock, up, from the foundation up, um, you're basically at best just addressing symptoms 
and you can be doing the best quality of almost any kind of other therapeutic approach you can imagine, and it's not going to be optimal and it's not going to be lasting unless you're getting to the root of the problem. <clears throat> and there's nothing more foundational that we have control over than what it is we choose to put in our mouths. And, um, you know, if we're avoiding those foods that are likely to invoke an inflammatory response, then we're putting ourselves well ahead of the curve and allowing our body, you know, a little breathing room to be able to regroup and, and, and stabilize um, out of those difficult emotional states. I have a question. So obviously what we put in our mouth is the lowest hanging fruit. For someone who is currently dealing with anxiety and depression and feeling the way you felt where just getting through one day was just exhausting. Right. Epic effort. Yeah. Epic effort, exactly. What else can they do today? Like, what are the first baby steps? Because I don't want people to listen and go, oh my gosh, you know, it's there's so much I've got to do. Like, what is three little baby steps that they can do today? Right. Well, okay. So, some of the things that we can absolutely take control over are, you know, eliminating you know, uh, processed junk and also dietary sugars and starches in general, um, you know, from your diet um, and, and stop relying on sugar to try to fuel you morning, noon and night because it's not a reliable fuel. It's a very volatile fuel. It's a very inflammatory and damaging fuel. And, um, you know, it, it's very compromising over time. And it definitely has, can have an adverse impact on mood. If you're not managing your blood sugar well, and few people do, then, you know, um, th that's one thing. Another thing is that, um, you know, just to touch upon the subject of gluten immune reactivity, um, gluten is this protein found in certain grains. Um, the ones that are most highly correlated with the type of gluten sensitivity everybody hears about are wheat, rye, and barley. Um, but gluten actually exists. Some form of gluten exists in all, in all grains. But the ones that are, that are known to be the most problematic are wheat, rye, and barley. However, there are other similar uh, closely related or semi-related grains and, 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 and foods that, or molecularly similar foods that your immune system may not be able to tell the difference between gluten and say um, oats or, you know, and, uh, or gluten and say even rice or gluten and corn um, or millet or, um, uh, uh, actually, the most common cross-reactive substance with gluten is dairy, can, you know, uh, because the casein molecule is very similar in its molecular structure to gluten. And so half of everyone with gluten immune reactivity also has a profound reactivity to dairy. And, and it's very interesting, um, celiac disease comprises only about 12% of what actually constitutes the totality of gluten immune reactivity, but it's all equally serious. It's all equally potentially deadly and debilitating. Celiac disease isn't more serious 
than non-celiac gluten sensitivity in terms of your risk for disease, autoimmunity, um, and uh, premature you know, mortality. Uh, but it's interesting, there was a, a, um, a journal of, uh, called Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics that published an article stating that depression is reported to be a feature of celiac disease and is ranked as its most common neuropsychiatric disturbance. And also in the journal Neurology, uh, researchers have stated that gluten sensitivity, they're not even talking about celiac disease here, but gluten sensitivity in general can be primarily and at times exclusively a neurological disease affecting not only the brain and nervous system directly, but also cognitive and psychiatric illness. And so um, one of the other things, too, that people don't realize is that they'll say, well, I don't have a problem with gluten. I don't have gluten sensitivity. Well, I would challenge you to do accurate testing to ferret that out because I didn't think I had a problem with gluten either until the immune results came back. And I was very lucky to catch it when I did because I'm the only member of my family without an autoimmune disease. Um, But um, that... That gluten, you don't have to have an immune reactivity to gluten in order for it to cause an inflammatory response in your body, in order for it to damage your gut, um, compromise your gut, or damage or compromise your brain. That everybody, regardless of whether they have an immune reactivity to gluten, when you eat something containing gluten, stimulates the release of an enzyme known as zonulin. And zonulin basically controls uh, gastrointestinal permeability, but also blood-brain barrier permeability. So for a few hours after you eat a piece of bread or something like that, the normally highly selective permeable membranes of your gut that try to protect what's in your gut from what's in your bloodstream, right, unless it really belongs there, All of that kind of goes out the window and those gates open up and whatever that hasn't been properly digested or whatever can slip through, enter into your bloodstream, into that super highway through your body called your bloodstream, mount uh, an immune reaction with your immune system, and also potentially cross your blood-brain barrier um, and affect an, uh, an inflammatory response there. Now... Also, there is a lectin found in uh, associated with a gluten molecule called wheat germ agglutinin. That can cross your blood-brain barrier all on its own, attach itself to your myelin, and block nerve growth factor, which allows your brain to maintain and repair itself. So it's effectively damaging and compromising of your brain over time. And this, this assumes that you have no immune reactivity to gluten at all. So effectively, there's no one for whom any kind of gluten-containing grain is a health food, and in fact, it's going to be compromising to literally everyone that consumes it in some way, shape, or form. And given the world that we live in today and everything we have compromising us, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily think the mantra, everything in moderation, is the smartest mantra that we can adopt. You know, how much, you know, how much inflammation and immune dysregulation and metabolic chaos do you want to enjoy in moderation? (laughs) Yeah, I think I'll pass on that one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's so interesting what you're saying. You've just really confirmed something to me because I have an 11-year-old stepson and I don't have control over what he eats when he's at 
his other home. But when he's right. here, I, you know, we don't eat gluten. I haven't eaten gluten, dairy or sugar in years. And right. I would say to him, well, how did you feel when you ate that? And he's like, I feel fine. So I don't have a gluten intolerance. And I'm like, right. well, I think I might have to play him this podcast yeah. episode <laughs> so that he can listen to to what you're saying. Because, And I know a lot of people, they're like, no, nah, gluten's fine for me. I don't get bloated. And I'm like, well. Yeah, I hear it all the time. Yeah, I hear it all the time too. I believed the same thing for myself. You know, I will tell you too, very often, and anybody who who understands uh, food sensitivity, understands the science of food sensitivity, has worked with this in a private practice or, you know, has, has, has at least read enough of the literature, understands that very often the foods we crave the most are the ones we need to question the most. Because it's very, very common to crave the most those foods to which we are the most sensitive. And, you know, my my mother has had cancer twice. Um, my mother has um, multiple autoimmune diseases. Um, and she is now dying of Alzheimer's disease. And she, by the way, she's never been overweight. She is, was a ballet dancer, very disciplined. She and my father, who my father was actually a world famous physician in his own field. And in fact, he wrote the textbook on cardiovascular radiology. He was very proud of his own, uh, of his own very low cholesterol levels. And by the way, he dropped dead of a massive heart attack uh, back in 2006. Um, they both were poster children for what the American Medical Association would have promoted as a healthy diet. They stayed away, you know, from animal fats, everything very lean. If there was going to be animal produce, very lean, um, you know, fish and chicken and uh, only vegetable oils. And, of course, they were putting margarine on stuff, um, all that kind of a thing. They both had multiple serious health problems. My father lost his gallbladder. Um, you know, he struggled with, with quite a lot of things. He actually had a huge aneurysm on his aorta that required surgical attention. He lost his kidney function. Um, and again, eventually, and he was at very high risk. He was told by his doctors because he had some preliminary symptoms to suggest that he could have a stroke at any time. He ultimately died of a massive heart attack and he was never overweight. He took great pride in his health. He walked every day, um, you know, and my my mother always used to say that the one food she could never live without was bread. That was her thing. She believed that was just a fundamental necessity for her. She believed it was healthy and wholesome. And if, I think she associated a lot with, with her religious beliefs as well. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it hasn't uh, played out well for her. And, and, you know, mind you, my folks didn't eat a lot of processed foods, but they did buy into the idea that, you know, that whole grains and things like that should be, and, and um, basically carbohydrate-based foods should be foundational uh, in, in, you know, in some respects. And I think they're largely, at mealtime, we had a lot of food that did look like food, you know, in other words, we weren't eating TV dinners and whatever, but, uh, and that's probably why my folks never... Um, got super overweight. They were also pretty active, though. My mom swam a mile every day. She did floor exercises. You know, she'd been a ballet dancer, so she took great pride in her physical health. And my father, too. Again, he took lots of walks, and neither of them overate. But, it, you know, they also 
didn't have fabulous health. And honestly, I'm the only member of my family that doesn't have an autoimmune disease or cardiovascular disease or some form of um, thyroid problem um, and that hasn't spent a night in a hospital. Mm. The proof is in the gluten-free pudding, hey? Yeah, so to speak, and then in the low-carb pudding, right? Yeah. So I'd love to hear now, this has all been so amazing, by the way, like I'm just nodding along to everything that you're saying, (laughs) and um, I'm going to be definitely forwarding this episode on to a few family members to inspire them. But I would love to hear what is one thing that you're currently working on within yourself at the moment? Is there anything that you're wanting to improve or focus on right now? Oh, always, you know, I, um, you know, I've been putting a lot of, uh, time into meditation and into, uh, consciousness, uh, practice and really trying to balance what's become an extremely, um, you know, uh, uh, at this point, a professional life that, that, uh, forces me to live in my own head a lot of the time and, and barely in my own body. And I really have to work at, at getting my body out there and getting it moving because so much of what I do now involves writing and educating and whatever. So I'm on the computer all the time, which is, you know, n- not the best thing. Um, and also it, there's the danger of getting caught in my own head and in my own narrative. And so I balance that by by taking time to um to switch that off and to uh you know connect with my most natural original internal nature my own fundamental state of consciousness and so um i've been putting a lot of um time into that and also a fair amount of of research into those uh, those areas um which you know, they say that, uh, I, yeah, well, Albert Einstein said, and I'm totally paraphrasing, uh, paraphrasing, you know, that the problems of the world cannot be solved with the same frame of mind that created them. You know, it, it's going to take a shift in consciousness for us as a species, um, as a society, to affect the changes in the world that we need um, to um, to preserve our health, to preserve our environment. Um, and, and to find a place of, um, of sustainability moving forward. And I'm just, I guess, trying to do my part in that, um, by, uh, you know, addressing the one person that, whose, whose mindset I have the most control over, which is my own. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, obviously, let's presume that all your books are in there. Yes, I was going to say. Because <laughs> they're imperative. You know, without, with, I mean, without being, you know, I mean, there's nothing vain about it, really. I wrote the books that I wrote because nobody else would write them. Mm. Because this information wasn't in one place through anybody else out there. Yeah, and they're so important and I highly and we'll link to them in the show notes and I highly recommend that every single person reads your books, but if there was one other book that needed to go in the school curriculum, what would you choose? It's so hard, I know. <laughs> you know, yeah, it is really hard. Um because I 
you know, I, I don't even, there are a lot of other books that I don't read because, you know, I'm, I'm, nowadays I spend more time reading uh, research papers than I do, you know, peer-reviewed research than I do other people's books. I do think nutrition and physical degeneration has a, a lesson to teach um, many generations to come to understand how our origins and how our place within the cycle of life, you know, really serves to forge our mental and physical health and that we've lost that, you know, we've lost our way, that we need to arrive back into uh, a state of sort of sustainable balance with the natural environment that sustains us and recognize that we are a part of that environment. You know, that certainly off the top of my head, I mean, I had I known this in a question in advance, I might have thought about it a lot more and maybe would have had some extra answers for you, but off the top of my head. No, that's perfect. Having talked about it, I think that that's, that's not a bad one. Mm, absolutely. I agree. Now let's talk about how your days look. You said you do a lot of computer time, but uh, do you have a morning routine? I love hearing about the little things people do. I find it really fascinating. Um, and how, so how do you prime yourself and set yourself up for the day? I tend to get up quite early and the first hour or two of my day will be spent in, uh, in quiet uh, meditation. Some of it with a meditative practice, some of it, you know, and, and in part, I might just maybe spend a little time out in the garden or whatever, um, grounding myself and um, um, kind of clearing, clearing my mind and allowing kind of creative impulse to arise out of that and um, kind of guide my priorities as opposed to just being in a state of constant knee-jerk reactive mode to whatever comes up, you know. Uh, really allowing um, the better parts of myself to help um, set the agenda, so to speak. Uh, I do uh, some amount of walking. I have a, kind of a sophisticated piece of exercise equipment at home I will try to use to help you know maintain some level of fitness. I, I would like to be doing more with that. My favorite form of training is kettlebell training. Um, and, um, that's a, just an absolutely fabulous, fabulous, uh, form of exercise. I think the best around. Um, but, um, I typically do some form of supplementation in the morning. Glutathione is a part of my daily regimen, a liposomal glutathione. Um, and I'll have a cup of tea. And I may or may not decide to have anything for breakfast. If I do, it's usually really simple. You know, I, you know, might scramble or boil a duck egg or have a little piece of, of really high quality breakfast meat, maybe with some, you know, sauteed veggies or something. Um, if I do anything at all with that. Um, again, most of my meals are actually pretty simple. When uh, my publisher asked me to put together a recipe guide, I thought, oh my God, really? I mean, I'm actually pretty handy in the kitchen and I can, I can cook really well, but I, I never use cookbooks. I don't actually like them at all. Um, I prefer to just sort of use my instincts and grab a handful of this and a pinch of that and, and just sort of instinctively put things together. 
Um, I will say that virtually all of the recipes in my new book, Primal Fat Burner, actually were recipes that I created, and then I had to use the uh, enlist the the skills of a an experienced professional chef. Actually, two two of them that went through and vetted everything, and then helped to standardize the recipes because I just didn't really know how to do that. Um, but a lot of those really are my own creation, are things that I you know will 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 eat at home. I can't wait to try some of them. I'm going to have to make them. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, they're they're good. <laughs> they're really good. So I'd love to hear now, what are three things you are most recently grateful for in your life? I am enormously grateful um, for the people in my life that matter to me. Um, and um, I actually just... I actually just found out today that I lost somebody that was close to me. Um, and I feel a deep gratitude for, you know, for that friendship. Um, and because ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's our relationship to one another that makes life worth living, you know, in this world. And so I, I'm grateful to you know, to be able to recognize and honor the things that matter the most in, in my own life. I'm actually very grateful um, for my own suffering with depression because it prompted me uh, and inspired me to discover so many things that could transform the lives of so many thousands of people in ways that never would have happened otherwise. Um, and... You know, I I don't know. I someday, some days I feel like I'm the luckiest person alive. I don't know. I, I live in a very beautiful place. I'm surrounded, you know, here in the in the Pacific Northwest with these enormous, gorgeous trees and um and um and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful natural environment. And I have a beautiful sanctuary within that environment and it's humble it's small my house is tiny and whatever but it has it, it it's it's just a beautiful sweet little sanctuary and I'm, I'm so so grateful for having that so um i could probably spend a lot of long time listing but those are the first three that come to mind thank you for sharing and i'm so sorry about your friend uh yeah yeah i'll I'll be having a good cry in a little while here. Mm. Now, I have a couple more questions. I've got three three rapid-fire questions for you. In your opinion, and I feel like I'm gonna, I know the answer to this, but what is one of the most important things that we can do for our health? Recognize that no one will ever care more about your health or well-being than you that you need to become your own best health authority to the extent possible. It doesn't mean you need to get this at a PhD level, but um, I created a, an online educational program that's been actually doing really well, and, and everybody is, is just loving it. Um, it's called Primal Restoration. You can go to primalrestoration.com to learn more. And it's, it's a program designed to kind of give people the foundations to understand the basic workings of their health and then gradually 
you know, once we work through the all the foundations, working into the nitty gritty of specific kinds of health problems and things and how to think about those and how to identify certain things in yourself um, or perhaps in those around you. It's it's not medical advice, but as I'm sure you realize, but um, but uh, all based on very, very solid scientific foundational principles. Um, and I'm, I'm getting incredible feedback. So be, developing an interest, in other words, in, in this machine that we all inhabit, right? And, and taking control of the things that we can, as you would say, reaching for the lowest hanging fruit, all the things that you know you have fundamental control over and what you choose to eat and, and what lifestyle choices that you make, um, that is the number one thing everybody can do right now. And, and we need to have that self-responsibility um, instead of just blindly trusting your health and well-being to those um, institutions or authorities whose best interest may n- not lie with your best interest, but may instead lie with profit. Mm. Amen. I agree completely. Now, what is one of the most important things that we could do today for wealth, more wealth in all areas of your life? Well, recognize that abundance isn't something that comes to you externally. It's a frame of mind. And either and, and the external environment around us may ultimately reflect that. Um, you know, you you know may may fall into resonance with that, so to speak. I'm not into magical thinking, you know, and the things like the secret and whatever else. But I do think that abundance is something that that comes from an outgrowth of kind of a foundational sense of well being, and that foundational sense of well being is something that it's not just a mindset, right? All of our thoughts and emotions arise through biochemical reactions in our body and brain, and those biochemical reactions rely on the nutrients that we supply them with in order to function, all of it. And so, again, the abundance can be an outgrowth of our fundamental state of health that we cultivate with every forkful of food, with every choice that we make in terms of what we're going to eat and what lifestyle choices we're going to make for ourselves. And there's, it's, a, it's a terribly self-empowering thing. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's about um, really getting a hold of your own self-empowerment and relying on that instead of, you know government guidelines or you know whatever else that's going to um that's going to that's going to guide you forward. Mm, I love that. And what is one of the most important things we can do for love, for more love in our life, more self-love and just love in general? Well, you said it when you said self-love. If you don't know what it means to love and care for yourself, Again, with the choices that you make, um, we can't know what it is to love anyone else. We can't even know what that means. And um, love has to do with, it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. If it were, it'd be a very fickle reality. It's, it's in part, it's a decision and a commitment toward your own well-being and you know, heartfelt connectivity to that and also to others as a natural outgrowth of that. Um, you know, at base, 
the idea that we're all sort of separate beings sharing an experience on this planet is the illusion that we all share, but something that certainly ancients have known from time immemorial and shamans is, is, is right on par with what physicists are now telling us, is that there is no fundamental separation of anything or anybody, that it's all one great thing. And the degree to which we can recognize ourselves as being an outgrowth of everything we see and come into contact with, I think, um, you know, enhances our capacity for self and other, you know, love and compassion. And it's, it's you know, this, this Newtonian model of science that compartmentalizes everything and everybody, um, creates the illusion of separation and anything that's not you is potentially something that um, is, um, you know, is dangerous to you in some way or, you know, is, is something that you could be in conflict with in some way. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've pretty much had it up to my eyeballs with the divide and conquer thing of, you know, this political party versus that political party, or, you know, this ideology versus that ideology, this religion versus that religion. We need to transcend all of that and, and focus on what as a species that we have in common, because what defines us as a species isn't, isn't our differences. It's what we share in common. And the same is true of our health. That, yes, there's bio-individuality, but guess what? What defines us as a human animal and as a human species is is not our differences, but the characteristics um, and the physiological makeup that we share in common. And the more we focus on that, I think, the better, um, you know, the better the world that we're going to create. Mm, I agree. And finally, my last question, what is one thing that I personally and the listeners can do to serve you today? Very thoughtful question. To serve me? Boy, you know, I, I would love to urge your listeners certainly to pick up my books and read them. Um, they were not written with marketing in mind. They were written with you in mind. Um, I, my motivation for writing them was to be able to create um, something that people could use to empower their own lives so that they wouldn't need me, so that they wouldn't need to be on a jillion different medications or take a hundred different kinds of supplements or, or see get all kinds of different therapies that people could find a way of taking control of their own health and life. And, and uh, in, a, you know, I, in the way I see this is the most foundational way we have for rebuilding the world that we live in. And, you know, and ultimately, you know, I'm a very big picture thinker. Um, I, I think in a much larger, in context of a much larger cosmology, it's not all about eat this and don't eat that. You know, there are greater reasons for doing these things. Also, I, I'm, you know, would very much... Um, like to encourage your listeners to, uh, you know, consider um, taking on my weekly educational uh, program, Primal Restoration, and, um, um, and, you know, giving, you know, an hour a week or so to, um, you know, to developing kind of an expertise over your own health and well-being. 
so that you have a working knowledge of how your health functions that is going to make you, you know, that is going to make it easier for you to avoid, you know, the pitfalls of, um, of all the things that are, are challenging our health in this world and also the pitfalls of aging, right? Help you avoid the pitfalls of aging. So, you know, this is what gets me up in the morning is to see people take control of their own suffering and learn to transcend it. And that to me is, is a tremendous gift because it's, it's really entirely, I think, why it is I'm here in the world and doing what I do. So, Thank goodness you are doing it because you are serving and inspiring so many people to take back control of their health, me included. And I just want to say thank you so much. I'm so grateful for the work that you do. And I'm very grateful that Aaron told me to read your book many, many years ago. And I just, I'm just deeply grateful. Um, So thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom, your knowledge. Thank you for being so open. I'm truly grateful from the bottom of my heart. Uh, thank you, Melissa. Really, you're a, you're a wonderful and gracious interviewer, and it's, it's really been a privilege to be here today. I don't know about you, but I totally love geeking out on all this health information. That was so insightful. I loved her thoughts on gluten. And I'd love to hear what your biggest insights were from today's episode. Share them with me in the comments section under the show notes on my website. And I don't know about you, but there are about 10 people I can think of off the top of my head that I will be forwarding this episode to right now. So if you loved today's episode and if you got a lot out of it, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes because that means that we can inspire even more people together. And don't forget to tell me on Twitter who you would like me to interview and make sure you tag me at Mel underscore Ambrosini and the person you want me to interview using the hashtag The Melissa Ambrosini Show. And for everything that Nora and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 33. And you can also check out all my other episodes there too. So thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best and healthiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You seriously rock. And like Nora said, one of the most empowering things that you can do is take back responsibility for your health and life. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from today's episode, please share it with them right now. Send them a text, send them an email, do whatever you've got to do to get them to listen to this episode. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.